0: invite you to open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. While you're doing that, just um, it's great to be back. We had a great vacation, but it's always good to come back um, and be home where we belong uh, here and worshiping with you. And uh, it's such a privilege, again, to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Also, just want to... Um, Good to see Reverend Neil Tolsma and his wife, dear wife from Wisconsin. Reverend Tolsma was uh, part of the press of the Midwest, still is, but when I came into the OPC uh, 20-some years ago, um, he was one of the fathers, when they say fathers and brothers, he was one of the fathers that we looked up to and benefited from. It's good to see your brother, and also I see a good friend, uh, Phil Gross, and his wife, Joy, uh, with us, graduates. Uh, we graduated together 30 years ago from Doric College, but we're not talking about it, and uh, <clears throat> Phil is the uh, pastor in the uh, United Reformed Church in Phoenix, uh, Arizona. So good to see you here, uh, brother, and your family. We are, uh, your bulletin will say, uh, verses 10 through 24. Once again, that is uh, not the the case. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 16. And uh, let's give our attention to God's Word. Verse 1, Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed to 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road." But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the, king, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we want to hear Jesus. And these words are hard, but they are true, and their intent is life and peace. And so we pray, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and respond in repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The title of my message this morning is Seeing Through the Eyes of Jesus. And we're going to be, uh, as we move forward, Lord willing, in these next few texts of chapter 10, we're going to be noticing how Jesus sees things differently than people see. Uh, John Calvin describes the Bible as a pair of eyeglasses. Uh, if you Uh, can't see very well. It's a wonderful thing to be able to put on a pair of uh, glasses and suddenly things become clear. You can see things that before you couldn't make out. Uh, Well, that is true spiritually speaking. All of us are born with really, really bad vision. Uh, We do have a sense of spiritual things. We have a sense of spiritual truths, but spiritually speaking, we are nearly completely blind. Uh, we can make out vague images spiritually uh, speaking, but, but we so easily are misled. We so easily believe things that are just flat-out lies, the lies that the devil tells us and that we tell ourselves. Uh, we uh, do have the ability to see with some clarity other people's sins, and yet we are nearly blind to see our own, or if we do even see our own, we find some way to justify it. We tend to worry about things that we should not be worried about and are utterly unconcerned about the things that Jesus is saying, you really need to think about this. You need to be concerned about these things. So we have just, we have blurred vision, awful blind spots. And the scriptures are given to us so that we can see, we can put on these glasses and see things as they really are. And so that's the beauty of the Gospels, is that Jesus, as, as Jesus speaks, as Jesus addresses the world as he walks through it, as he lives in it, we get to see through Jesus' eyes. We get to see things as he saw them. That's critically important because, of course, Jesus being the Son of God has perfect vision. He sees life as it really is. And so this morning, let's give our attention to the Son of God, uh, as Jesus has this amazing ability to show us the truth about ourselves, the truth about life and death and judgment and grace and the gospel. Let's give our attention. We, uh, the last time we were in the Gospel of, of Luke, we looked at verse, uh, chapter 10, the first few verses, as Jesus sent out the 72 into the, the towns and villages of Galilee. Uh, they were sent with a message. They were on a mission. They were sent to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand. Uh, and the kingdom of God was, was had come near in the person of Jesus, the king. Uh, in those days when kings wanted to travel through their realm, they would send out messengers, heralds, to go announcing the king is coming, the king is coming. And that wasn't just sort of a public service announcement um, just if you're interested in such things, the king will be at the, the local city park and you can come and maybe get your picture taken with him. That wasn't the intent at all. The intent was the king is coming, you better get ready. The king is coming, there's going to be an accounting. The king is coming, you need to respond appropriately or there will be dire consequences. And Jesus sends his heralds, his messengers, into the surrounding countryside, the villages and towns, to announce the king is coming. And Jesus instructs them, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. So be there on purpose. Be a good visitor, but be there on on purpose. Heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. These are men sent with Christ's authority on Christ's mission to speak Christ's Words. To announce the king had come, but not simply to announce it, but to evidence the truth of their words by this ministry of healing the sick and casting out demons in his name. Those were not neat tricks intended to gather a crowd. They were proofs, evidences of the truth of the message. That there was a power in the world, in the king Jesus. A power that was able to beat back the forces of the curse, able to cast out the evil one, that this king was coming to set captives free. He had come to do war against Satan and his hosts and to uh, conquer death with life. It's just a magnificent message. It's the most critically important message the world will ever hear. The king has come, God is drawing near. Lift up your heads. For redemption draweth nine. And it's precisely, you see, because of the infinite significance of that mission and the importance of that message that Jesus then speaks stern words regarding those who reject the message. So Jesus says, verse 10, When you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets. So go into the... out in the open where people can hear you, and say to that town, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Now this would be a, something that every uh, Jewish person standing around Jesus would understand what he was saying. As I explained last time, when, uh, when uh, Israelites would, would travel from Galilee, which was up in the north, to Jerusalem, which was down in the south, they had to go either through Samaria, which was in the middle, or they had to go around, go across the Jordan River, come down, and then go back into um, to Jerusalem over the Jordan River. And when they would, when they would enter back into how, whatever route they took, when they would enter back into God's country, God's land, they would wipe off the dust from the Gentile land. That was unclean dirt in a sense. It was by that they were saying that there was something significant and unique about God's people and God's land. And so for, the, for these messengers to wipe off the dust of their feet, they're saying to that town, you are, you are like Gentiles. You are like uh, Lohurami, not my people. It's a, it's a very stern, very striking statement they'll be, they'll be making when they do that. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Even though you don't receive it, even though you reject it, the kingdom, the reality of the kingdom is still still true. It is is near. And then Jesus says one of the most shocking things you'll read in all the Gospels, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Now, we're going to take some time to just unpack what a shocking thing that is for Jesus to say. Remember, he's talking to Jewish people. He's talking to Jewish people in Galilee. Galilee. These are people who believe in God. These are people who know the law of Moses and try to observe that law. These are Abraham's children. They're good, moral, spiritual, religious people. And and Galilee, in, in fact, was known as sort of a place where there was particular religious fervor. Many religious schools and synagogues were in Galilee. And yet Jesus has the audacity to say, that on the last day it will be it will be better for Sodom than it will be for them. That that these good religious people will suffer greater judgment than the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, again, every person listening would have they knew this story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 18. These are cities down in the plains of Nineveh that were committed to the most flagrant, blatant, perverse, sexual sin. Think gay pride parade in San Francisco. It's not just that these cities were full of sinful men. Every city in the world has always been full of sinful men. But Sodom and Gomorrah gloried in their sin. They delighted in their shame. They boasted in it. And it was an intentional, in God's face sort of sin that they insisted on the right to determine their own identity, to live their own life. And and so when God sent His two angels as messengers to to, uh, warn the cities that He was going to bring judgment, remember what the men of the city did. The angels went to Lot's house, and the men of the city were beating down the door, trying to get in to abuse these two men. They, They were outraged that Lot had the audacity to suggest to them that they were doing something that should not be done. Who made you judge over us? It's exactly the language we hear today. Who has the right to determine what we do with our bodies? Who we sleep with? How we self-identify? Who dare speak to that? Well, God dares to speak to that. And so their sin is in God's face And so God, he destroys them with fire from heaven. And so every Jewish child knew the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. These are cities that stood as the paradigm for human wickedness, the epitome of of human uh, aggression against God and the evidence par excellence of what God will do to those who flagrantly, intentionally war against him and his good creation. So everyone who knows... who's hearing Jesus, knows the story. They know their Old Testament Bible. They know that everywhere in the Old Testament, Sodom or Gomorrah are mentioned. They are mentioned as the evidences of conspicuous sinfulness that is ripe for judgment. Furthermore, if you'd asked the Jews that Jesus is talking to for contemporary examples of Sodom and Gomorrah, they they would have pointed north. Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were just to the north over the border in Phoenicia. These were um, also intensely wicked cities. That uh, They were the sort of the nerve center for Baal worship. Baal worship was a grotesquely sexually perverse worship. And furthermore, these are harbor towns, sailor towns, known notorious for their sexual perversion and immorality. But Jesus shocks everyone by saying that there are cities worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. There are cities worse than Tyre and Sidon. Cities that are even more perverse, even more antagonistic to God, and even more ripe for divine judgment. And the shock is he points to cities in Galilee. Chorazin is right there on the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida was nearby. It's the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. Capernaum was Jesus' adopted hometown. We know from Matthew chapter 4, 13, that uh, he uh, spent most of his time in Capernaum. That's where, um, that's where he lived. And the citizens then of these towns are committed, you see, to the Jewish religion. They consider themselves to be the pure-blood children of God. And yet. Jesus is saying to them, if you could just imagine sitting, standing in the crowd listening to Jesus speak and Jesus points to you and says, it would be better for Sodom and Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for these cities. Why? Well, because if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. You see, when it comes to God's top 10 list of sins, the most extravagant, flagrant, sexually perverse, in God's face behavior Yet you can imagine is not the worst sin. There's something worse, something that's more deserving of judgment than the gross pagan idolatry and perversity of Tyre and Sidon. And what's worse in Jesus' eyes is this, it's a failure to repent and believe the message of the kingdom and submit to the king in the face of all God's revelation. Now, I want you to just stop and think for a little bit about the nature of the offense. Why, why were these cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and, and all that they stood for, what, what was so offensive about them? I mean, why would God be more upset with the sins of Capernaum than the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because if you were just looking at the two cities, whatever you want to say about the people of Capernaum, they're at least moral people. They're not, they're not trying to tear down God's appointed boundaries in the world. They, they don't seem to be living with their, their finger in God's face. They believe in God. They go to church. They teach their children the Torah. So why would there be greater judgment for the sins of the moral people of Capernaum, whatever they might be, greater judgment for that than for the sins of the most immoral pagans of Sidon? And the answer is very simple. It's because, first of all, their unrepentance, the unrepentance of Capernaum takes place in the face of God's multiplied grace to them. These towns had front row seats to Jesus' ministry. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him raise the dead. Capernaum was where uh, the paralytic was let down through the roof on a mat, and Jesus forgave his sins and raised him healthy and whole. It's where the centurion's servant was Healed simply with a word from Jesus. So they they heard Jesus preach in their synagogues. They heard him speak and teach in their streets. They were the primary recipients of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. They saw him, they heard him, they witnessed all the evidences of who he was and what he came to do. Sodom and Gomorrah, entire and, and Sidon. They were wicked, but they were just lost in the darkness of of evil. and The the law of God was written on their hearts, so they're they're still culpable. They're not without excuse. Or they are without excuse, right? The law of God's written on their hearts. But they haven't received the gift of divine revelation, whereas the people of of Bethsaida and Chorazin and, and Capernaum have been, they've just had God's revelation dumped all over them, showered upon them. They had the law of God and the words of the prophets read to them every Sabbath in the synagogue. They had the temple in Jerusalem with all of the ceremonial laws pointed to the character of God and their need of a Savior. And then they had the very Son of God in human flesh living in their town, doing what only God could do, speaking the very words of God himself. But they didn't repent. They didn't repent. They didn't humble themselves before God. They didn't, they didn't weep over their sin. They didn't confess their need for mercy. They didn't put sackcloth and ashes on, which was just a sign of complete humbling. They, they didn't cast themselves upon God's grace. Why not? Why didn't they? Well, it, I think they would say it, it just didn't occur to us. They assume that. I mean, it would make sense why the people in Tyre and Sidon would repent in dust and 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 ashes and and in sackcloth. They need to repent for Pete's sake. But, but, but we're we're God's children. We're 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 good people. We're religious people. We're moral people. We're doing the best that we can and. And, b- and because, you see, that's, that's sort of how they saw themselves. They couldn't hear the gospel. They couldn't receive the gospel. Because the gospel is a message about our utter inability to make ourselves right with God. That no matter how moral you might be, no matter how religiously or spiritually inclined that you might be, no matter how, what your intentions might be and how laudable those intentions are, and it doesn't even matter how much you've, you've grown and you're not the person you used to be, you've, you've changed. Okay? Okay? But without Jesus Christ, you are dead in transgression and sin, you see. There's an offense that stands between you and a holy God, and it is an offense you can't make go away. And so you see, these people just couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't grasp that. They would need a Savior. It didn't make sense to them that they would need to cry out for mercy, that they would need to cast themselves prostrate before God. They just couldn't hear the gospel. They were offended by the gospel. With the, the message that they were utterly uh, unworthy of God's favor and utterly unable to do any saving good and, the, and that God would receive them only through this man, Jesus Christ, as he gave to them a free gift of righteousness. They couldn't hear that. Do you know there's people in churches today who are exactly in that same position? They, they're good people. They're moral people. They try hard. They can tell you the gospel, but they don't get the gospel. It hasn't, it hasn't humbled them, hasn't broken them, it hasn't put them on their knees and on their face before God confessing their sin with brokenness and, and begging that God would be willing to give them Jesus Christ. And so you see the great offense is that their offense took place in the face of all God's revelation. And that by not hearing the message, not responding to it, they're rejecting Jesus, Jesus and the Father himself. So verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. That's not just hearing this way, it's hearing from your heart and receiving it. And the one who rejects you rejects me. No matter how gentle the rejection might be, there would be people who would hear the message and they'd think, that's a really good teaching. But they, they didn't repent. And so you see that no matter what praises they might laud upon Jesus, because they did not repent, they were rejecting his messengers and they were rejecting Jesus. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Anything less than a repentant response to the message of the gospel, anything less than that is rejection of Jesus and a rejection of God the Father. Those are the dots that people so often don't connect. They'll they'll listen to uh, the gospel. Maybe they know the gospel. They've heard it. They find some things about it that they like. They're not antagonistic to it. They appreciate some of its teachings. But they have no sense that in their sort of um, critical, judgmental stance over the gospel, they have no sense that they're putting their fists in the face of God. They're rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting the Father. You see, friends, with these words here in Luke chapter 10, what they tell us is that the greatest crime in God's book is not the most flagrant, perverse sexual immorality. The greatest crime is sitting under the preaching of the gospel with the religious pride that keeps you from humbling yourself in sackcloth and ashes and repenting of your sin and crying out for mercy and grace. So as much as God deplores the flagrant perversion of a San Francisco gay pride parade, he deplores even more the quiet perversion of unrepentant people sitting in good reformed churches in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That's what we need to hear. The worst sins are not taking place in the streets of San Francisco. The worst crimes are committed by those who've been born and raised in the church, who sit under the preaching of the gospel, who know the message of redemption, and yet do not repent. They don't humble themselves. They don't cry out for grace. They don't cry out for mercy. So that it will be better, Jesus says, on the day of judgment for the people of Sodom and Sidon and Tyre than for those in Hudsonville, Door, and Wyoming who heard the gospel and did not repent. That's what he's saying. Reichen says this, By the logic of what Jesus said about Sodom and Chorazin, the day of judgment will be the most unbearable of all for people who worshiped in Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches but never entered the kingdom of God. God holds us responsible for what we know about Jesus. The greater the opportunity, the greater the responsibility. We will have to face the eternal consequences of our response to Jesus and his gospel, and there will be no excuses. You see, there's, there's something about being born and raised in the church or being in the church, and there's something about hearing the gospel that places a debt, an obligation, a responsibility upon you. You didn't ask for it. It But it's there, it's real. You know now, can't say you don't know. Who is more responsible for dying from lung disease? The poor poor person who grew up in a house just down the road from the coal factory or the pulmonologist, the the lung doctor who smoked his lungs away in the full knowledge of the dangers? Who's more responsible? Well, the, the lung doctor. The more knowledge you have, the more responsible you are. One of, the, one of the greatest tricks of the devil is to, is to teach people to place their righteousness, to place their hope in how much theology they know. And so people will argue and, and debate and dialogue and they just love they love talking theology and they love beating up on other people with their theology or they love just sort of wrapping themselves in the righteousness of their good theology without any sense that that theology will stand and judge them on the last day. See, no one had more knowledge or more privileges than the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida, and so Jesus pronounces his woes over them. Woe to you, is what he says. It's a word that speaks of tremendous sadness, of, of great tragedy, coming devastation. You see, Jesus Jesus isn't... He's not just angry. it's 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 a holy indignation and sadness and grief as he sees the truth, you see, about all these good religious moral people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, people that he's lived with, people that he knows, but he sees the truth about them. And it's awful. And so he pronounces the woes to them Woe to you, as as he sees in his mind all that's going to happen because of their unbelief, because of their unrepentance. On May 6, 1937, Herbert Morrison, a young radio reporter for WLS in Chicago, was on assignment at the Naval Air Station in Lakehurst, New Jersey. He was there to report on a transatlantic journey of the great airship, the Hindenburg. And so he was there as they were Beginning to land the craft and something happened, no one knows exactly for sure, but suddenly the hydrogen-filled balloon erupted into flames about 300 feet above the ground, crashed in a roaring ball of fire, killing 37 people and wounding many, many others, and all the family and the friends were standing there watching. You can listen to Morrison's words. As he watched the towering inferno consume passengers, loved ones standing by, and he's, he's oh, the tragedy. Oh, the humanity. All the passengers screaming. It was, it was so awful, he just had to stop. He couldn't talk. He saw people perishing before his eyes. Friends, Jesus knows what the day of judgment looks like. And when he looked at the people of Capernaum and the people of Beseda. he saw the awful, awful thing that was going to happen, the tragedy, the devastation, people perishing for all eternity, and all because their quiet, committed refusal to humble themselves in dust, dust and ashes, that their self-righteousness just blinded them to the Savior. They were unwilling to confess the truth of their sin. They were unwilling to repent of their aversion to humbling themselves and casting themselves on God for mercy. And so they were lost. It's it's just, it's so tragic. This is why, friends, Jesus cries on his way to Jerusalem. And he looks over the city. Oh, Jerusalem. Weeping, the Son of God. Oh, Jerusalem. How oft I would have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. You would not. How do you apply this? Well, several things. One, we need to know that the most miserable people in hell will definitely be the the church people. It won't be the, the flagrant pagans. It'll be the church people, the pastors, the congregants who knew the truth, they heard the message of God's grace for sinners in Jesus Christ, but never came to a humble, honest, contrite confession of their sins and true repentance, casting themselves upon Jesus. If Jesus' words mean anything, they mean that the day of judgment will be the worst for those who went to church but didn't repent. And the better the church, the more biblically grounded the doctrine, the more gospel centered the ministry, the more egregious the failure, the more horrible the destruction. Let me speak to those of you who have grown up in the church and have not professed faith in Jesus Christ. Young people, you've been blessed by God with unspeakable privileges, Christian parents, other vibrant Christian families around you, Sunday school teachers who told you the truth, gospel preaching, evidences of God's transforming power at work in the congregation, and yet some of you have not professed your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of you are just not serious. You're just not serious about the things of God. You believe you, but you're not ready to commit. Young person, you need to know that your sin is grievous. It's not the sin of whatever you might be involved in. That, that's, that's grievous too. The sin that most grieves the heart of God is that you know the truth, you know the gospel, you know that you need to humble yourself, you need to repent, you need to to profess your faith in Jesus Christ. But you don't. Young person, you need to hear from this text that that sin is more grievous than the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's just simply no way to reinterpret Jesus' words to mean something else. And that Jesus who wept over Capernaum and wept over Jerusalem Is a Jesus who longs for you to humble yourself. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Let me speak to some of us who are just comfortable in our spiritual pride, and this is all of us, right, from time to time, but this is the truth of the gospel. Some of you have a pattern of sin in your life and you're not repenting. We all have patterns of sin in our life. The issue is, are we repenting? Some of you are not. You have a pattern of anger with your spouse or your child. Some of you are addicted to sexual sin of one sort or another and you're not walking in repentance. Some of you are greedy and covetous and you don't see the evil of it. Some of you have a complaining spirit. You are not thankful and you are not repentant. And you cannot imagine that God would despise these sins, your sins, in light of all the other religious things you believe and the things that you do, the experiences that you've had. It seems inconceivable to you that God would consider your sin more egregious than the vilest sexual offender. And you might be offended if someone suggested that unless you repent, you will go to hell. But friend, that's exactly what the people of Capernaum thought and that's exactly what Jesus told them. If you do not repent... You will go to hell. That's what Jesus says. You, Capernaum, do you think you will be exalted to heaven? That's exactly what they thought. They were good people, they were God's people, they were Abram's children. Jesus says, No, you shall be brought down to hell. That's what Jesus says. I don't know how Jesus could speak any more clearly to any of us this morning. If you are unrepentant in your anger, in your lust, in your greed, in your self-righteousness, your whatever, however minor that sin might seem to be to you, if you do not cry out for mercy because you don't really think you need mercy, Jesus wants you to know, friend, you're heading for hell. Jesus says it. You see, the worst crime is an unrepentant heart. It's the one great sin that will keep you from heaven. Every other sin can be forgiven. Do you know that? Every single other sin that you've ever committed, but not unrepentance. Because unrepentance is just pride left to itself. And pride left to itself, no matter how moral it might seem on the outside, pride left to itself will always drag a soul to hell. Do you, do you understand that, that Jesus is standing in the middle of God's people when he's saying these things? He's, because he loves them. Because he loves them. And because there's a spiritual fog that settled over the people of God of his day, and there's a spiritual fog that, that settles over the church today, so we just can't hear the, the warnings that Jesus speaks. Friend, we need to hear the warnings that he speaks. If we are, if we are in unrepentant sin... better for Sodom and Gomorrah. But that's not the whole story. You see, this same Jesus who offered these words of warning, he did not shake off the dust of his feet. He could have, should have maybe even But this same Jesus who spoke these words, this Jesus continued to set his face toward Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem to die there. And he went to Jerusalem to die there for the sins of these people. You see, the gospel is so amazing. It it is able to cleanse even Christian sins. Even the sins of those who have have, have sinned in the worst possible way. The gospel is for people like you and like me who've known the truth and yet we've sinned against the truth, who've received grace and yet we've sinned against grace, who've received privilege upon privilege upon privilege and yet in certain points and places in time we've simply made the decision we don't care. We are going to reject the message, the message and the messenger. We're going to reject Jesus. We're going to reject the Father. We're going to do what we want to do, consequences and God be damned. That's what we say when we sin knowingly sin. And the devil will come back and he'll hold that sin in front of you and say, how dare you think that God could forgive you for that? And your conscience will accuse you and condemn you as, it, as it, that's what it was given to do. The conscience will say, look at you, you're nothing but a hypocrite. And you know what? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And Jesus comes and says, if you will confess your sin, if you will repent, if you will humble yourself, if you will acknowledge that your righteousness, the best of it, cannot gain you heaven, and that your only hope is Jesus Christ, you've got nothing else to plead, and you you bow before the Lord your God, you get on your knees and on your face, Confess the truth about your sin. You humble yourself before the Lord. The Bible promises that God will raise you up. God opposes the proud, but he delights to give grace to the humble. He loves to give grace to the humble. Come to me, all you weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. Jesus is ready to save. Jesus gave his life to rescue you from your sin, the awfulness of it. And so the invitation of the gospel comes to you this morning. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and that, that, that time is now. Call upon him while he is near. The kingdom of God has come. And it's a day where sinners can find grace. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he might have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. There is vastly more grace available than than your sin. Right? Where the mountains of our sins... Right? The floods above, above the mountains of our sins, the floods of his mercy rise. There is grace, friends, for you. There's grace even for you. But you must humble yourself. You must repent. Whatever that sin is that has its grip on you, whatever the hardness of your heart that, that, is, that is there, maybe that you just have been living with, friend, Jesus Christ is calling you today to wake up to it, to to acknowledge it, to confess it, and to turn in faith and repentance to him, and the gospel is for you. Jesus went to the cross to pay for the worst sin of all, the sin of church people. And his grace is for us. Let's believe it. Do you wonder why there's maybe a lack of joy in your life? Do you wonder maybe there's been just a lack of spiritual energy? I think one of the key reasons why we suffer these things is because we simply haven't gotten on our face before Jesus, confessing the truth of our sin, laying ourselves before him, and receiving the incredible good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for sinners, of whom I am the chief. And where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and because of Jesus Christ, there is no charge laid up against God's elect. There is no condemnation. If God is for us, who can be against us? Friend, I pray that you would know that message. If you need to talk to somebody about your sin, if you need to talk to somebody about your own repentance, I beg you to come and talk to me or talk to an elder, talk to a Christian, mature Christian friend. Don't just walk away. You've heard the message. And a judgment day is coming. Are you ready? In Jesus Christ, you can say yes. Yes. Yes, I'm ready. May God grant that to all of us, amen. Well, Father in heaven, Lord, you know us, you know us. Jesus, you, sp- you speak shocking things. But Lord, they are words of life. If we will hear them, And they will be words that stand against us on the last day if we don't. Jesus, I thank you that you give your spirit so that we can hear and we can respond. Jesus, I pray that your spirit would be speaking to your people. That we would examine our hearts and our life, that we would confess whatever unrepentance is there. And that we would turn and find Jesus to be a sufficient Savior. One who gladly forgives and pardons. And Lord, that that gospel truth would humble us so that we could confess our sins to each other, we could go to those we've offended, and we can ask their forgiveness. We can see the sins of other people around us without becoming self-righteously indignant for our sins are so much worse. And the gospel is so good and so true. Well, God, use your gospel to transform us, to make us gracious, to make us kind, to make us compassionate, to make us thankful, to to teach us godly contentment, to make us holy. Only your gospel can do it. And oh God, please, please don't pass us by. You are the shepherd of our soul. Do what only you can do. And we'll give all the praise to you. Amen.